Hope. It's good to be with you all this morning as we open up God's Word together and study the story of Scripture, which we've been in over these past couple of weeks. If you're newer with us today, what we've been doing is going through the entire Bible to help tell this all-important story that God has been working throughout history uh, through people and how he's been working in the world, working even to this very day. When I was younger, when I was very little, I remember my first grade and kindergarten teachers used to give us these little sheets of paper to help us learn math. These sheets of paper had these uh, weird illustrations on it, and they were called Connect the Dots. And you've probably seen something like this, right? Where the teacher will tell you, use one dot and find the number two and connect that to that dot and find the number three connected to that dot, find the number four connected to that dot and so on. You've probably done this before. And then when the teacher wanted to get really complex and really fool you, she would say, find the dot that equals zero plus one, find the dot that equals one plus one, find the dot that equals two plus one. I remember this because that was the last time I was good at math, so I remember this pretty well. <laughs> and these dots were supposed to be connected to draw something, to eventually lead to some sort of illustration. And I think if you've ever seen a connect the dots image, it's messy, it's hard to decipher, it's hard to see until the lines are drawn between. And what we've been doing over these past couple of weeks is really trying to figure out what are the lines that connect all of scripture? How do you draw straight lines between Abraham and Paul, between David and Moses? Is there a straight line that goes between the exile that we studied last week all the way to us today? And so throughout these passages, we've been saying that we're going to look at the Bible in a very unique way. And we said that the Bible is how many books? 66 books. How many chapters? 1189. Some of you have been really paying attention. And they tell how many stories? One story. We said that the story of Scripture is God with us so that we can be with him. You might remember that over these past couple of weeks, we've been looking at these numbers, right? Pastor Brian's lottery numbers. We've been looking at these <laughs> for the last couple of weeks and studying them and understanding how Scripture is divided. And we said that it's not always a sequential story from beginning to middle to end, but the books are organized based on genre. We said that those five books of the law, the five first books of the Bible, are followed by 12 books of history, followed by five books of wisdom literature, poetry, and then five major prophets, which eventually lead to 12 minor prophets. And all of them are overlaid on this period of time in the history of Israel and God's work throughout the generations. And then you come to the 4-1-21-1, the four books of the gospel, the one book of church history, the 21 letters to the churches, and eventually one book of prophecy, a book of things yet to come. And this morning, in just the short time we have in front of us, we're going to spend our time right here in the four. We're going to look at all the dots that eventually connect to tell the story of God working throughout history in these Gospels, in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, these four books right at the beginning of the New Testament. So if you have a Bible in with you, or if you want to grab the Bible in the seat back in front of you, we'll actually be on page 804 this morning. 
And as you turn there, page 804, can someone please tell me what's on that page? 804. And shout it out. When you get to page 804, what do you see? Nothing. There's nothing on page 804. And this morning, we're going to talk about the nothing on page 804. Because if you want to know the story of the gospel, which is a word that means God spelled the good news of God, if you want to know about the good news of God, then you have to see the good news of God in the context of the entire scripture that comes before it and all of our lives that come after it. We've got to know the good news of God. So we use this word gospel. We use this word a lot in the way we talk. We use it when we sing. Even this morning we sang about the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are looking for an easy way to understand all of history and understand the gospel, we see it this way, that God created us to be with him. We learned that right from the beginning in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. We learned God desires us to be with him. But along the way, there's this massive tragedy of human history where our sin separates us from a holy God. If you want to look at it this way, if you want to start connecting a few dots here. You've got these dots that are present, and you've got these giant cliffs, these chasms that exist between us and God. Here's God in all of his holiness and his righteousness, and here's us separated from God, and there is nothing we could do to cross this chasm, nothing we could do to bridge the gap between us and God, because our sin separates us from God, and as a result of that, we cannot do anything, and our sins cannot be removed by anything that we do. So as much as I'd like to believe that my good deeds will bridge this gap, Scripture tells me my good deeds are like filthy rags. They don't even come close to filling this gap, this chasm that exists between myself and God. And so the good news is that God said what you couldn't do, I'll do it. I'll pay the price for your sin by sending my son Jesus to die in your place where there was sin, there had to be the shedding of blood to atone for that sin. And God says what you could not do, what you could never cross, I will cross that gap for you by sending my son to die in your place. And then everyone who trusts in me has eternal life. If you put it this way, we studied last week, Pastor Brian talked about the book of Jeremiah chapter 31, written hundreds of years before Jesus enters the scene. And there was this new covenant, this prophecy saying that all throughout history, I've been dealing with guys like Adam and Abraham and Moses and David, always dealing with them in covenant, this permanent bond that I deal with them in based out of my love and law together. There's this covenant that I'm dealing with. And everyone who puts their trust in Christ can now be saved, can now cross the chasm, fill the gap, and that becomes the new covenant. The new covenant in my blood is how Jesus refers to it, that this new covenant, one that's not based on what you can do, but it's based on everything that Christ did for you, Jesus makes that happen, and because of that, we can have relationship with God again. And then we learn this throughout the books that are to come, that life with Jesus starts now and it goes on forever if we simply put our trust in him. If you haven't been paying attention, this is the gospel. 
This is the gospel of Jesus Christ that God wants us to be with him. That our sin separates us from God. There is nothing that you and I could do to ever cross the gap. And everyone who puts their trust in him can have eternal life and life that goes on forever and ever with God. The relationship that was broken between God and man is set together again through the new covenant in Jesus Christ. But that begs a bigger question then. If that's the gospel, what about my life right now? There's a verse in the letter of Galatians where Paul says like this, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent us the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Fullness of time. All of scripture that we've been studying, thousands of years, many generations, dozens of authors, 1,189 chapters, all of the dots connect to Jesus Christ. And God says like this in his word, he says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son. How many of you have that blank page in front of you right now? The empty page. The page between the Old Testament and the New Testament. That one page represents 430 years. Think about that for a second. God goes silent for 430 years. Between the last words of the book of Malachi... And the first time he speaks again, which is actually in Luke chapter 1, between those years, 430 years that are passed in between, 430 years of silence, 430 years of no miracles, 430 years of no amazing work that we got to see, no face-to-face -face interactions between God and man, no amazing things happening in his temple, no giant wars being won necessarily, and all of this is happening during 430 years of silence. Does God work in silence? Does God move in silence? Does God have a plan for the silence that you and I are experiencing right now? Does God work in ways that we don't understand? Does God do things in his own time? And if he does, how can I know it? This is the question that we all wrestle with daily. God, I haven't heard from you in a long time. God, I don't know if I have a real relationship with you because I don't know what kind of timeline you're on. Your timeline is way off of my timeline, so God... It sounds like we're going through a blank page period right now, a season of silence. Between Malachi chapter 4 and Luke chapter 1, there are 430 years of silence. Can anyone tell me who the first person God speaks to after the 430 years is? Anyone want to say it nice and loud? Mary, she's probably the second person. Nice and loud? Zechariah is the first person that God speaks to after 400 
and 30 years. And some of you are saying, who's Zechariah? Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, is a priest in God's temple. For 430 years, a priest would walk in to the temple of God and offer a sacrifice and worship God in that temple for 430 years once a year. 430 times, no one hears a word from God. No priest has an encounter with God. There is nothing happening 430 times. If you want to flip that page back one little bit, and you'll see in Malachi chapter 4, the final verses of the Old Testament. And this is what we read there. Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction and the old testament ends silence saying that we're gonna have to wait until this happens until elijah comes and starts to speak back into the lives of god's people we're gonna have to just wait so god used kings and judges and exile all throughout history with these covenants to abraham and david and speaking through moses and the law and all of it just stops in malachi chapter 4 saying you have to wait for Elijah. In Luke chapter 1, this man Zechariah walks into the temple for the first time that year. He is given the right to do that through a series of lots that were cast, and he's given the opportunity and the responsibility to walk into the temple and offer this sacrifice. There would have been a giant curtain there between the most holy place and the holy place, and he would walk in, face this curtain which separates him from God. And he'd look at this curtain and he would offer this sacrifice. But if you come to Luke chapter 1 verse 17, something different happens. For the first time in 430 years, God speaks through an angel who says to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And you shall call his name John, and you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And listen to this, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah. 430 years of silence. Elijah, the power and the spirit of Elijah is coming. And here in Luke chapter 1, John the Baptist, his birth is told, and he comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Can you imagine waiting 430 years for, for God to fulfill his promise? Can you imagine year after year, empire after empire, waiting and waiting for God to work? A situation that some of you might be experiencing even right now. God, are you there even in seasons of silence? Even when I don't see you or hear you or know that you're at work, are you at work, God? God, what does your timing look like? What is this fullness of time idea that you have, God? Why did you make those people wait 430 years before you fulfilled your promise through your son, Jesus Christ? Let this morning be a reminder to all of us that even when God seems silent, he's at work. 
that even when God feels distant or even when the timeline doesn't match our timeline, he is at work. Do you know throughout history as the people had walked off in Malachi chapter 4, you see that the world starts to change. Right after the, the time of Malachi, the Persian Empire starts to spread and take over most of this part of the world. And of course, this is not a God-fearing or God-following group or a God-following empire, but this is the Persian Empire takes over most of the known earth. And, but what do they do? They help rescue the Israelites from exile and captivity and allow them to go back to their homeland of Israel. And so they're allowed to leave exile. This is right around the beginning of those 430 years that we've been talking about. A man named Alexander the Great enters history, and you might remember this from your own history classes. And Alexander the Great lived only to the age of 33, but what did he do? He expanded the Greek empire all the way from Greece far into western India and made this giant empire that all of the world now feared and knew. By the way, Alexander the Great is foretold in the book of Daniel. And you can overlay history right over the book of Daniel and see this happening. Because God, who had been working since the beginning of time, was fulfilling his promise step by step. And so Alexander the Great comes and unifies this giant landmass. And what does he also do? He Hellenizes, meaning he brings about one language, one culture that he wants to spread across this whole land. Do you see how one language can greatly benefit the advancing of a gospel written in Greek? Do you start to see that? And little by little, God is working through the empires and the people of that time. The Greek Empire is eventually taken over by the Egyptian Empire when Alexander's generals rise and start to take over the land. The Egyptian Empire continues to include the Greek language all over the world, and eventually that leads to the Old Testament being written in Greek. And for people to access it for the first time and be able to read it in their native language and look back and see the promises of God in this language that people have been studying and learning. And so the Egyptian empire starts to rise more and more through the four generals of Alexander. Eventually, in, you'll see that the Syrian empire will come up, the Maccabean era comes up, and you'll have that all of these historic events that take place, especially because Jews are moving around, and these terrible atrocities take place during that time, especially in the temple of God. And eventually, it gets to a point predicted in scripture where one of the emperors comes and he offers a sacrifice to Zeus in the temple of God and desecrates the temple. For 430 years, things are happening all over the world and eventually gets to this place that this man offers this sacrifice to Zeus in the middle of God's temple and the Jewish people are absolutely outraged by it. And so they start to divide on political and cultural lines that you see throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels. You'll start to see the rise of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, these people that we keep seeing in the New Testament. And all of that is happening to set the stage for something that God wanted to do. In 63 BC, the Roman Empire comes when Pompey and his generals and his armies march into Israel and take over all of the lands that you see in multiple colors there. The Roman Empire spreads and grows large, but here's a couple of things that happen with the Roman Empire. They bring about these new laws and extremely brutal punishments for breaking the law, which we'll get to in just a minute. 
They bring about all kinds of changes when it comes to education and taxation, and they tax the lands that they control. But here's something else that happens. They also have control over language and learning. The Romans were known for building roads, and now travel becomes easier throughout the empire. They build the first systems of mail going across from country to country through ships and through travelers and merchants. The mail system begins a system that would be so important when we get to letters in the, in the New Testament. And all of this starts to happen as God is setting the stage for what would come. Because the Gospels, the four books of the first four books of the New Testament are not simply the biography of Jesus or simply the timeline of Jesus' life. But Matthew tells the story specifically to Jewish people to tell them that this is the promised one you've been waiting for. Mark tells them about a suffering servant, one that would go quickly to the cross because you need to know about the sacrifice he made. Luke would give you this detailed biographical and historical look at Jesus, the man who walked among people, rescued people, saved people, healed people. And John would tell the story of Jesus as God, that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. All of that would come together under the Roman Empire, an empire known for its brutality, an empire known for its power and authority over people. And in this situation, God decides to act. The silence is now broken. In seasons of silence, it can feel like God is not working. It can feel like he's not doing anything. There's no pieces moving to help me in my life and my situation. But the entire story of scripture is a connect the dots. That throughout history, God is moving forward his plan until he gets to the most important dot, and that is Jesus, the Son of God, coming to this earth to save us from our sin and to set us free once and for all. And so throughout the Old Testament, you're introduced to this term, Messiah. The Greek word would be Christos or Christ, the word that we use for Jesus, meaning the anointed one, the one we've been waiting for. And so if I connect the dots, does Jesus fulfill all the dots throughout history? Does he get to be the one that we've been waiting for? There's dot after dot after dot. And you have to ask that question. Is he who we thought he was? In Genesis chapter 3, the first prophecy of the Messiah takes place. And that prophecy starts to narrow down the potential candidates for who could be the Messiah. The one that God is sending to close the gap. God says like this to the serpent that, my, that, that the seed of woman and the serpent, there will be enmity. There will be a, a, a war between them. And that the seed of woman will crush the head of the serpent. Seed. One. Human. Male. So we're starting to narrow down who this could be. The picture gets clearer and clearer. In Genesis chapter 22, God speaks to Abraham and he says, that, uh, that uh, uh, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. It's getting narrower and narrower. In Genesis 21, it is through Isaac's descendants that, that the world will be blessed. In Genesis chapter 24, we see that it's through Jacob. In fact, this is what that verse says, I see him now, but not now. I see him, but not now. A star shall come from Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Genesis 49 tells us that out of the tribe of Judah will come the one. So now we know he is the son of Abraham, the son of Isaac, the son of Jacob, the son of Judah, 
And in fact, in Genesis 49, there's a prophecy that the scepter will not depart from Judah until this one has come. Do you know when the scepter departs from Judah? When does the kingship line of Judah end? It ends when the temple is destroyed in A.D. 70. So, Messiah has to come somewhere between the life of Abraham and the year 70. And of course, we know Jesus fulfills that perfectly. We know this over and over again throughout Scripture, that not only will he come from the tribe of Judah, that we know that he will be a stem from the rod of Jesse, meaning he's from the branch of Jesse, which Jesse, of course, is the father of David, and he'll come from this Davidic line. If we had time this morning, we could go through Matthew chapter 1 and see the entire genealogy of Jesus Christ from both Joseph's line and then go to, Matthew, and go to Luke 2 and see it from Mary's line, and you will see in both cases they are descendants of David, and Jesus fulfills that prophecy. The candidates are getting smaller and smaller. Who could be this person? Matthew's genealogy tells us this. And then in Deuteronomy, we see the prophetic role of the Messiah, that he would come to this earth and that he would walk among people, that he would minister in Galilee is a place that we get to hear a little bit about. We find out that he would be rejected before the destruction of the temple in AD 70, which Jesus fulfills. We have prophetic words telling us that he would be uh, from the tribe of, of, of Judah, that he would be from the Davidic line, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that he would suffer, that he would die a brutal death that he would bleed for us all of this perfectly foretold hundreds of years before it ever happens is jesus the messiah absolutely is jesus the christ the anointed one of god absolutely and all of these things are prophesied well in advance that jesus is the fulfillment of all of those things and he reminds us 465 times in the old testament that the Messiah would be one that comes, and so he does. He starts to connect the dots. And all of us, as we watch throughout history, is there any connection between me and Abraham and Isaac and David and Jacob? And here's me over here somewhere in the world wondering, God, is there a connection? Jesus connects all of the dots. All of the dots in history are connected through Jesus Christ that God and us can be all together as one because of what he did on the cross for us. That you and I are connected to this story. That even if we are in seasons of waiting, that we are deeply connected to this story. And some of you walk in this morning and say, look, I can't wait on God anymore. It's been so long and he has not answered my prayer. He's not moved on in, in my timeline the way I thought he would move. Therefore, he must not be working. For 430 years, that's what the people of Israel thought. Maybe he's done. Maybe he stepped away from his covenant relationship. Maybe he doesn't have a part in this plan anymore. And therefore, he's silent means he's not working. I remind you this morning, for those of you who are going through a season of waiting, a season of silence in your life, Scripture tells us over and over again, wait on the Lord. That's an interesting phrase that we hear. You see, when you and I wait in this world, when we wait in our lives, we often wait and we wonder. We wait and hope something happens. But the Bible tells us about this idea of waiting on the Lord which is very different from waiting and wondering. It's waiting in eager anticipation that God who promised will fulfill his promise. 
That God who made the promise is not a God of broken promises, but a God who moves and works in his promise. So if you have this question on your heart right now, how do I know if God is working? How do I know he's moving? Because all of scripture, all of history has been him working and moving, using people and those who put their trust in him, especially in this new covenant. And sometimes when we face silence, we think silence is a broken promise. This morning, I remind you all, don't confuse silence with broken promises because God who was at work is still at work right now. The Bible tells it to us like this, that they who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They will rise up with wings like eagles. They will walk and not grow weary. They will run and not faint because they who wait on the Lord have a newness of strength because we know we're not waiting and wondering. We are waiting in eager anticipation. Henry Nouwen, the famous author and and theologian, he puts it this way. He says that when you watch people in the circus who are on a trapeze, there are people who are catchers and people who are tumblers, right? The people who are floating through the air and, and twisting and turning through the air. And then there's the person who just goes back and forth and catches the other person. And Henry Nouwen had an opportunity to speak to trapeze artists and they said, there is no doubt that the star of the show is the tumbler. But we as trapeze artists, we know that the hero is the catcher because they're the ones that actually have a responsibility. When the other person is just tumbling, the catcher must time it perfectly to get there in time to catch that other person. In seasons of silence, we can feel like we're just tumbling and there's no God at work, there's nothing happening, and then out of nowhere, his hand comes and catches us. On the cross of Calvary, this was God catching us when we thought that he was not at work. He provided the way that we could never provide. Remember the chasm? He crossed it with a cross. He allowed us to access him again, to be connected to him because God is at work even in the silence fulfilling his promise. God is at work in your life right now. You might think that, God, you've been so silent to me. Clearly, you don't work. And some of you might be holding on for this good luck charm to come through, hopefully at some point, but I'm going to have to do things my own way for now. And this morning, there's this powerful reminder through the gospel Jesus came to this earth and he suffered under Roman law, the most brutal punishment possible. Why? Because you and I can be assured that God is still at work even in the silence of our lives. I want to invite our worship team to come back up this morning as we prepare to close. Psalm 37 says like this, be strong and take heart. Psalm 27 says, be strong and take heart. And wait on the Lord. This morning, some of you are here and you recognize Jesus as your Savior. You recognize Him as Lord of your life. But the honest truth is that you also are dealing with utter silence right now. I invite you to close your eyes and bow your heads with me this morning. Can you imagine Zechariah walking into the temple? God had not spoken to any man for 430 years in a recorded way. Year after year, a priest would walk in, face that curtain, and eventually find out nothing. Can you imagine Zechariah that morning when he walks in and an angel is waiting at the curtain? 
for some of you right now, there's a curtain between you and God. You're not able to pray. You're not able to talk to him. You're not able to hear from him. Why? Because you've confused silence for broken promises. If he is not saying something right now, then he must not be working. If all of history was a reminder that one day God would send his Messiah, that he would move kings and kingdoms to send the promised one. And the new covenant says all you need to do is put your trust in him. And this morning for some of us, that's the call, to put our trust back in him. God, I know you've been silent. God, I don't feel like I'm connected to you or know you, but I thank you for this reminder that I can be connected to you through the cross and what Jesus did on it. In fact, the Bible tells us that at the moment Jesus died, that curtain that Zechariah faced was torn in two. It meant that you and I have direct access to a God who loves us enough to die for us. And this morning, that is the most powerful reminder for each of us as we face the situations in our lives where we feel God is silent and have confused that for broken promises. To say, God, I know that curtain is torn. I can speak directly to you and I believe your spirit can speak directly to me. Lord, this morning we ask that you would do that. Heavenly Father, we come before you today and we recognize so often we have confused silence for broken promises. But God, thousands of years ago, you stood in front of a man named Abraham and you made a promise. That promise passed down to Isaac and to Jacob and to Judah and eventually down to David and eventually down to this little, tiny little manger in Bethlehem where Jesus Christ came to this earth. Thank you that you are working through history. Thank you that you are working through the blank page. That Thank you that you are working through the silence. And Lord, we come before you recognizing that so often our lives feel silent, distant from you, that God, you're not real because you are silent. Remind us this morning that you are at work, Lord God. Thank you for your presence this, in this place. Thank you for what you did on the cross for our sins. Thank you for what you did, Lord God, because of that, we have eternal life. We give you all the glory and honor. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Amen.